Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the time when we open God's Word and hear from Him. We have sung His Word, we have prayed His Word, and now we will proclaim His Word. Ben read to you verses 11 through 20. That's the longer section. That's the longer section of the verses I want to look at this morning. I want to take you to verses 11 and 12 specifically today. But uh, the longer section goes down to verse 20 and possibly even to the rest of the letter, to be honest, because the key verse of verses 11 through 20 is found in verse 15. Verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 2, key verse to this section, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Specifically, he's talking about those who do not know God, those who are the critics of Christianity. He says the way you silence them is you do what is right. Do what is right. Take the very words of their criticism right out of their mouths by doing what is right. Don't spend all your time arguing with them about justifying or reviling back at them like like Jesus did not do. (laughs) He did not revile when he was reviled. We are to simply do what is right. Silence, you will silence them. You will muzzle them, verse 15, verse 15. You will muzzle them like you do an animal. They will have nothing to say, not be able to say anything. You're, you're reducing them to silence. You're taking the accusations right out of their mouth when you do what is right. Ignorant men, he calls them ignorant because they're willfully ignorant of God and disobedient to his word and they're anti-Christianity, basically. They're critics of Christianity. And we're going to silence them not by what we do, or excuse me, by what we say, Well, we're going to do it by doing what's right. And that's our greatest tool in evangelism, folks. That's our greatest tool in evangelism. All of these strategies for evangelism are great, but this is the one. This is the one. This is the one right here, the way we live our lives. Lifestyle evangelism, you've heard the term. That's what this is. Doing what is right. I'm taking you to verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 12 for a moment. You want to bring them to a place where they will actually glorify God on the day of visitation. If we don't want to glorify God, why should we expect them to one day want to glorify God? So this is foundational. These verses are foundational to our Christian testimony and evangelism. It's it's what we do not what we say, that makes evangelism believable. It's the platform of our credibility. And it's what makes Christianity valid to the world. I appreciate apologetics. I know you're learning that in Sunday school, but you can know all the apologetics in the world, but that doesn't make Christianity as valid as your life and my life. The change, the transformation that takes place in us So Peter's calling these believers, they're facing hostility, you know that, you've seen, we've gone through that in the background of this, of this book. Uh, they're facing all kinds of hostility, and he's saying you have a faithful witness even in the midst of that. No matter how intense the criticism gets, and we're seeing this, no matter how intense the criticism gets, you do what is right. You do what is right, and don't give your critics anything to criticize you for. 
Show them that Christianity is valid and, and as they see its power in your life. And even when you blow it, because you're going to blow it, and even when you blow it, they, they see that there's a response to even that, that you know how to get back on track and repent. Many people, excuse me, he's saying to them, he's saying to them, many people don't go to your church excuse me, many people will tell you they used to go to church, rather. Many people will tell you they used to go to church, but they stopped going to that church because of the hypocrisy in that church or because they know somebody that goes to that church. And they know what they're like, and they don't want to be associated with that person. They say that's the number one reason some of these people will say that. That's just an excuse. I get it. That's probably just an excuse. But the point is, you never hear people say, the reason I don't go to that church is because of what they teach. They don't say that because they probably don't know what they teach at that church. But the primary reason they don't go is because they can think of someone that goes there and they see hypocrisy. And I don't want to be a part of that. If that Christianity does not make any difference in their life, why should I want to go there? I, there was somebody years ago that attended our church and, and he had a bad reputation, uh, unethical reputation uh, became known and people said, I don't want to go to that church because he attends that church or he's a member of that church. And I just, when I heard that, I thought, please, if you're going to live unrepentant like that and call, don't call yourself, number one, a Christian and number two, please don't tell them you go to our church. <laughs> because that that's discredits all of us. That discredits our gospel, that discredits Christ and brings dishonor to him. So, it should make a difference. It should make a difference in our lives and it should be obvious to people around us. And so, living a holy life, practicing what we preach, and living distinctly from the world. That's our greatest strategy. It's really not debating and politics and all of those things. We can talk until we're blue in the face, folks, but listen, if we don't have a credible testimony, if we don't have, if we're just giving them reasons to criticize us, then that is not the strategy that Peter's talking about here at all. You see it down in Chapter 3, if you're in chapter 2, go down to verse 3. This is just the evangelistic strategy, even in the home. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. In the same way, this is a wife who's connected to an ungodly husband. This is a wife who lives with an unbelieving husband. Verse 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be noticed one without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. It's pretty practical. We'll get there eventually, and we'll talk about that more in detail, but the point is, it's the lifestyle that's the greatest and most powerful evangelism tool you've got in your, you've got. And so he gives two urgent calls in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. 
One is a call to repel or a call to go to war, basically. And verse 12 is the call to attract, attract the unbelievers around us. There's just two verses we'll look at this morning. We're challenged to repel and we're challenged to attract. Notice in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. He just got through telling these people, if you are with us last week, he got, just got through telling these people, you are the chosen of God, you're a royal priesthood, you're a people for God's own possession, you're a people that have been shown mercy by God, you've got a very uh, incredible identity as a believer, a very incredible position as a believer. And now he says to them, you are beloved. That's a word that's surrounded by that surrounds the word agape, basically. It has, it's the idea of a uh, deep affection. It could, be, it could certainly Peter's deep affection for these people by addressing them as beloved, but it's used eight times in this uh, First Peter and Second Peter. And I only highlight it because it's such an incredible word to think about, beloved. You're beloved. Uh, he's reminding them how much God loves them because that's going to be the motivation for what he's going to tell them to do. God loves you, reciprocate by doing these things, by living a holy life, by walking in obedience to his word. Peter will go on later in 2 Peter and say, he heard God say of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He uses that same word beloved to describe believers. We are so connected to Christ that we are in union with Christ. That what is true of Christ is true of us. We are beloved because we're in Christ. He loves us so unconditionally. And that's where our, uh, our spiritual identity is to be wrapped up in, is how much he loves us, and we're his beloved children. Here's something I read recently and I thought was good, or heard, came across recently I thought was good. Do I live my life, think, get, follow me on this, do I live my life thinking if I obey God, he will love me? Is that how you think? Do you think I live my life thinking if I obey God, he will love me? Is that how you think? Or do you live your life thinking because God loves me, I will obey him? Which do you think? Do you think I had such a bad week this week, everything went wrong this week, I blew it so many different ways this week, God does not love me anymore, or he loves me less than he did last week? Do you think like that? That's kind of the natural way to think, when the truth of the matter is, he loves me so unconditionally, he never changes his love for me, there's nothing about his love for me that has gone anywhere, it's the same last week as it is, and it's the, as this week, it goes on, it's constant, it never changes, no matter what, no matter how I as a Christian behave, it's not up and down with God, it may be, you may be up and down with people around you, but he's not up and down with you. And he wants you to obey him because he loves you so much. Not so you'll get more love from him. That's a powerful motivation. That's a powerful motivation to want to live a life that pleases him. Because he loves me so much. I don't know, I just got to think about that. I just got to stop and ponder that sometime. How much he loves me. 
because I don't feel love, very lovely or lovable <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> but that's not how God thinks. So he starts out reminding them of that, beloved. Then he starts on this. Based on that love, I urge you, I encourage you, I implore you, I appeal to you, I beg you, reciprocate that love with the obedience that he's fixing to lay out for them. And it's an obedience, by the way, that starts on the inside because he's going to be talking about inward desires here, okay? He says, you're aliens and strangers. He used that term in verse, chapter 1, verse 1, aliens and strangers. Uh, aliens, you, you, living alongside the house. That's kind of what the word means. Listen, you live alongside the house of people who actually belong there. You don't belong there. They belong there. You're aliens. This is, this is not your home. That's how he describes us as Christians. This is not our home. This world is not our home. Our citizenship, Philippians 3.20, is in heaven. We're sojourners. We're passing through. We have a time of our stay on this earth. And then we'll get to our real home, our true home. Aliens and strangers, strangers scattered, he said in verse 1 of chapter, you're scattered. You're scattered in a, in a world with people of all kinds of values that are different than yours and all kinds of religions that are even different than yours and all kinds of customs that are different than yours. They, they breathe a different air than you breathe as a Christian. You're scattered amongst all those people. I urge you, as one who is an alien in this world, one who is a sojourner in this world, Abraham saw himself as a sojourner. You recall that from Hebrews chapter 11. If you want to turn over, I think it's one book from there to Hebrews or turn back. Figure it out. I'm not exactly sure where. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11. You recall this. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. He was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Then down to verse 13, talking about others who died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In Philippians 3.20, I told you already, says we are citizens. Our citizenship is in heaven. Yeah, Abraham had a, had a nephew. Recall Lot. Remember Lot? Lot did not live like Abraham lived. Lot set his focus towards Sodom. Lot built his tents close to Sodom. You read that in Genesis chapter 13. He pitched his tents near Sodom, that godless city, Sodom. And then you read later in Genesis, he's now living in Sodom. You follow me? He, he started out just outside the city and gradually he was allured into the city. He didn't live as an alien. He pitched his tent right in the middle of everything. And too many Christians do that so many times. They just settle down like the world and become like the world. And they forget what Jesus said, that I did not ask you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to keep them from the evil one. I, 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 they're not of the world, 
even as I am not of the world. See, Jesus never expected us to necessarily, we're not saying cloister ourselves in a monastery um, and withdraw from the world in the the sense that uh, we have no interaction with the world. He doesn't expect us to do that or call us to do that. He wants us to be an influence in the world. He just doesn't want us to be influenced by the world. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to stay detached but to still be involved. That's a challenge. That is a real challenge. And, and not become conformed to the world. We have to really fight that. We really have to figure that one out and how to fight that. And with our children, it's even more challenging because I certainly, as an adult, have a greater ability to discern the things going on in the world than my kids do. And so I want to be a shade, as I heard John MacArthur say a while back, a shade for my children to protect them from things that they can't really protect their own minds from. So it's a challenge. But nonetheless, we are to be lights in the world. We're to be influencers in this world. We are to bring people to the point where they will glorify God on the day of their visitation. So that's a challenge. It's really a challenge. And we need wisdom in parenting. We need wisdom as believers in how to maintain that and not to look like the world and to think like the world, to behave like the world. He goes on and says, the key to this, the key to this is to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Now we're getting to the inside of you, inside of me. Lust is desire. It's not necessarily talking about sexual lust only. That's certainly part of it, but it's any, it's desires. It's desires. He says, I'm to abstain from fleshly lust, meaning sinful lust. I'm to hold myself constantly, continuously back from doing something or partaking of something. I'm to keep my distance from, that's what the word abstain means. I'm to keep my distance from something. He's writing this to Christians, it's interesting. He's writing this to Christians. Here's the problem, folks, here's the problem. We have a new nature inside of fallen flesh. We have a redeemed nature that lives in an unredeemed body. That's the problem. So he's telling Christians, you must abstain He's not talking to the world. He's talking to Christians. Christians are the only ones that have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the ability to do what this verse is saying. To abstain from fleshly lust, desires or cravings of the fallen nature, evil desires and sexual desires and uh, angry, anger and bitterness and desires like that and filled with rage and hate and he lists some of those things in he's already said this by the way in 114 as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance then go to chapter 4 verse 1 he says he says so as to live the rest of verse 2 verse 2 so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men but for the will of God for the time has already passed For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, the desire of unbelievers, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. 
In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they, they malign you for it. In Galatians 5.19, he gives a list of the deeds of the flesh. Let me just read these to you. You can just mark this down. Galatians 5.19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, he's saying to abstain from fleshly lust. He is saying to, he is saying to keep your distance from fleshly lust. See, this is, this is the inside war that goes on in us. This is a battle that goes on in us. But this is where outward behavior starts. Folks, if you're, if you're not fighting the battle on the inside, outward behavior is it's not going to bring glory to God. You're going to fail if you're not fighting the inside battle. Go to uh, maybe Romans 6. Let me just talk about Romans 6 for a moment. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but you can. But when we come to Christ, I told you this, I told the class this this morning, we're delivered from the power and penalty of sin. You understand this. When you became a Christian, you no longer will face condemnation for your sin. Never. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He paid the penalty for your sin. You will never pay that penalty. And you're also, Romans 6 tells us, you're also also set free from the power of sin. There was a time when you could not say no to sin. You and I as a believer, we didn't have the power to say no to sin. And now Romans 6 teaches us that consider yourselves dead to sin. He says, think like this, that you've died to sin. As you died with Christ and rose with him, so you have died to sin. This is, this is a mind thing. This is where the mind must really remind itself constantly that I am dead to sin. I do not have to sin. The opportunity is there for me to sin, but I don't have to do it. Before I did, before I had to follow those natural impulses, before I had to go with biology, before I had to go with the, the nature, my old sinful nature, but now I actually have power to say no to it. Because the power of sin has been broken. One day I'll be free from the presence of sin. That's what I'm looking forward to. But right now I'm living in a f- fallen body, fallen flesh. I have a new nature inside this fallen flesh, and this fallen flesh has cravings. This fallen flesh has cravings that, that I have to fight against. And it's an everyday battle. You don't just think, oh, I had victory today, I'm going to have victory tomorrow. That is not true. We have the, 1 John 2 says, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is a united front against us. This, in, this flesh craves satisfaction. Craves satisfaction. I know this about everybody in this room because it's true of me. We're all like this. We're all like this. We're tempted to overindulge when it comes to fleshly things. 
appetites, whether it's eating or drinking or sleeping or working or sexual desire or material possessions, we are tempted to satisfy the cravings of our flesh. He's writing to Christians, not non-Christians. He's writing to believers here. The lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, there's all these things appeal to us. As long as we are in the world, we will be tempted to satisfy our lust, our cravings in a way that is contrary to God's will. That's all of us. One day this body will be redeemed, Romans 8 says. I'll get a new body. But right now I've got a redeemed nature living inside a fallen body, unredeemed body. And according to Peter in this verse, in verse 11, it's like we're, we're soldiers walking through a minefield. See it? Which wage war against the soul. See that? I urge you to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Which is interesting. Which, by their very nature, these fleshly lusts, by their very nature, wage war against you. There's a battle in you. It's not about you out here trying to get along with everybody else around you. No, it's the battle is in you. Wage war, it's, a, it's present tense. It's continuously waging war. It never stops. It's a military campaign against you. That's what it is. It's a military campaign against you. It's relentless. And it's continual. And its sole mission is to dominate you, to enslave you. and destroy our lives. That's what soul is. Soul is talking about you. That's you. The totality of you, soul. It fights that new nature. It fights that Christ in you. It stops at nothing. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, remember Romans 7? The very things I don't want to do, I do. The very things I want to do, I don't do. Got a battle going in. There's a battle in me. There's a war in our members, he says. Swindoll said this For unbelievers, this earth is a playground where the flesh is free to run wild. But for the believer, the earth is a battleground. It was so much easier when you weren't a Christian, right? Sure. Steve, Steve Davey says this, there are some books and magazines you should not read. There are some TV programs that you should not watch. There are some video games you should not play. There are some places you should not go. There are some relationships you should not encourage. All these things do are feed the cravings of your heart, the sinful cravings of your heart, the sinful cravings of the flesh. So basically, you're at war with yourself. That's what this first verse is. You're at war with yourself. D.L. Moody said, the biggest problem I have is D.L. Moody. It's just a war with yourself. It's true for all of us. I want to say this about repentance for a moment because I think this is so important. I don't want to get you all discouraged and thinking, ah, wow, you know, because that's easy to do. I read this in um, Making All Things New. It's a book by uh, David. Do you remember, Anne? I can't remember. I guess I got in the mail yesterday. Anyway, David's his first name. 
He said the trumpet call of the Reformation, the trumpet call of the Reformation was not the priesthood of believers. It was not even justification. Those were very important, but they were not the first trumpet of the, of the Reformation. He said the trumpet thesis number one of Luther's 95 theses was this. He, this is what he nailed to the Wittenberg door. He said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's your whole life. It's your whole life is one of repentance. It's not just initial at salvation. Luther says the first call of the Reformation is Jesus Christ was meaning that becomes our lifestyle. We always are repenting. When I look at these battles and I see myself losing, I just repent. Turn around. He said... That's the dynamic, inner dynamic of the Christian life. It's that ongoing change process. It involves a continual turning motion, turning toward God and turning away from the riot of other voices, other desires, and other loves. We, we tend to use repentance for its narrow meaning, for some decisive moment, but it's ongoing. It's ongoing. It's not restoration that takes place at one time. It's continually being restored because I need it. I need grace continually be shown to me. And so that's, that's how the Christian grows. I fight these impulses and I'm constantly at battle with them and I'm constantly saying no and I'm constantly saying, God, forgive me for failing and blowing it and giving into it and forgive me for that, God. Because left unchecked, left unchecked, it will lead to behavior that does not bring glory to Christ. It will bring, it will not fulfill verse 12, is my point. Pallison, by the way, David Pallison is the last name. <laughs> um, John MacArthur's had a great quote on this before I move to the next point. If those preachers who scandalized the church with their immorality on the outside had been abstaining from lust on the inside, the sin on the outside would have never happened. You follow that? So when you hear some big scandal, you know it did not just start from that act itself. There was other things going on in the heart that led to that. There was the failure to abstain from fleshly lust, from desires in the flesh, because that's where the battle starts. Now, verse 12 call we want to attract people we want to attract people keep your behavior excellent among the gentiles so you had to say verse 11 before you got to verse 12 so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify god in the day of visitation so this is the evangelistic strategy um, live your life in front of people like i said in our introduction this morning and you want the best way to induce people to the gospel? Just live it. Just live it. I mean, you've got to speak words. Don't get me wrong. People have to hear the gospel. But this is the platform. This is, this is the platform. Verse 15 of chapter 3, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Look at that verse, 3.15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So we live it. We live the gospel. It, it, it intrigues them. 
when you don't respond the way everybody else responds to situations, when you have a marriage that is not like everybody else's, when you raise your children in a way that they're not raising their kids, or you, whatever, our Christianity should make a difference. It's not perfect, but it should make a difference. Keep your behavior, keep your daily conduct, manner of life. That's what behavior means. Your daily conduct, your manner of life, excellent. Very loaded word. Takes seven English words to define it. That's kind of how the word is. It means winsome. It means gracious. It means fine. It means fair to look at. It means noblest kind of goodness. It's that kind of word. It means it's just excellent. I just want to live life in excellence. I get up every morning and say, God, help me live like that today. You know my flesh is going to go every other direction but in this direction. And he's talking about the Gentiles. He's simply talking about unbelievers, the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world will see us. Our quality of our life will be visible. And the purpose of that is so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, discredit you, that's what people are trying to do to Christianity today, discredit us in every way they can. Believe me, they know you're a Christian. They're looking for some reason to discredit you, looking for something. We don't need to give them something. Let's let them just say what they want to say and by the quality of our lives, take those words right out of their mouth. In Peter's day, Christians were thought of as evildoers. If you can imagine that. I told you this before, but they were thought of as evildoers. They were thought of, uh, they were falsely accused by all kinds of things, slandered for all kinds of things. These people are, those Christians, they're immoral. They're immoral. Uh, they, they participate in incest in their private gatherings and, and cannibalism. And when they take the Lord's table, they're eating a body, a literal body. That's what they're doing in the Lord's table. And, and they're, they're, they're treasonous because they won't submit to Caesar and worship Caesar. And they're seditious because they, they bring slaves even among their midst and call them brother and sister. And then the vicious rumor that Nero started about this time when, when he burned part of Rome because he wanted to remodel the city or rebuild parts of the city and he blamed the Christians. So all kinds of things like that. So this is a godless world they were living in. We live in a godless world too, and there are rumors like that, and people seem to do that, to want to do that to Christianity today, and um, we don't need to defend ourselves from all of that. We just don't need to defend ourselves from every accusation. Prove them wrong by the way we live our lives. That's what Peter would say to you this morning. Prove them wrong by the way we live our lives. Don't revile. 1 Peter 2.21, don't revile. Look at that verse. 1 Peter 2.21. This is talking about, in verse 21, we've been called for the purpose of suffering, basically. We'll see that in a few weeks. But verse 21 of chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, I mean, he did nothing wrong. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Hey, I'm called for that. You're called for that. 
And Swindoll goes on to say the most effective defense is the silent integrity of our character and not how, largely, how loudly we deny the charges. Verse 12, again, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's just another way of saying, let your light shine before men in such a way they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Good deeds, beautiful, attractive deeds. That's what should characterize every Christian is good deeds. You were saved to good deeds. Our deeds do not save us, works do not save us, but we were saved to good deeds. Good deeds are the evidence that you belong to Christ, the one who is good. You were saved to good deeds. Titus says we are to be an example of good deeds. Titus 2.14 says we're to be zealous for good deeds. Titus 3.8 says we are to be careful to engage in good deeds. You know what the best advertisement for Grace Church is? It is, you know, I, I thought, sometimes you think, well, let's put a billboard on Thomasville Road. That's what we need to do, put a billboard up on Thomasville Road. Grace Church, one block off of Thomasville Road. That's not true. Off of Monroe Street. Down, you got the point. The point is, a billboard. What did we say last week? We said last week, we are to proclaim the excellencies, the excellencies of God. Proclaim, I told you last week, is the word for advertise. The best advertisement for this church is not a billboard, though there's nothing wrong with billboards, but there's, there's not a billboard. You're the billboard. I'm the billboard. We are to be the billboards, the advertisement for this church, for Christ. That's the best way to put the word out to this community about us. Each of us, all of us, are to be billboards. Now they've got billboards in the back of moving trailers, so now we're moving billboards. Everywhere we go, we want to be a billboard. We're always being watched. We're always being watched. When we first moved into our neighborhood 30-plus years ago, a neighbor commented to Ann, I can't believe he's a pastor. He's wearing shorts while he's doing yard work. I thought, this is going to be rough. <laughs> Pastor has moved into the neighborhood. Now there's these, but they're always watching us. And whatever they think Christianity is, they're going to ascribe it to you and me. That's, this goes with the territory. When you're a pastor, it's even worse. So it's, so we're always being watched. You tell someone you're a Christian, like I said earlier, you're always being watched. As they observe, see that phrase, as they observe them? It's ongoing scrutiny. They do an ongoing scrutiny of you, present tense, always going on. They're taking mental notes about you. And, and this isn't just a one-time thing, it's ongoing. It could be a long-term thing. They're watching consistency. And they're drawing conclusions, and they're trying to say, is this Christianity true or not? And it could be years of observing, who knows? And you may get discouraged. You say, I've been living this in front of them for this long and there's no results and what's going on? And you might get discouraged, but you don't stop doing it. Do not grow weary in doing what is good. Just keep on doing good. Continue to display the beauty of Christ through your lifestyle. And he ends with, as your enemies or critics observe, they might glorify God in the day of visitation. 
Commentators have different opinions about this verse, this part of the verse, glorify God in the day of visitation. And uh, I think the best approach to this is to look at how it's used in other places in the Bible. And it's interesting, it's used in both Old Testament and New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it's used in two different ways. It's used for when God comes in judgment, and it's used when God comes in blessing. That's Old Testament. However, in the New Testament, it's used a few times, and it's only used for when God comes in salvation. And probably the best example of that is when the triumphal entry, after the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into the city, he then weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He weeps for them because they did not recognize their visitation. They did not recognize their salvation. They did not recognize the one who came to save them. And so I think the best way to interpret this ending here is to say that that when God comes to save them, when God comes to save them, these unbelievers, when God comes to save them, they'll remember your testimony. They'll remember the testimony of believers. And they will glorify God just as those believers glorified God. They'll remember the lives of faithful Christians. I think about the centurion who was at the foot of the cross. Everybody is mocking Jesus. Everybody is cursing Jesus. Everybody is hurling insults at Jesus. Come down from that cross if you're God. And, you know, all of these things. And the centurion, it says in Mark 15, 39, When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. I just can't help but think that that man is in heaven today, that centurion, that Roman centurion, participating in the crucifixion of Jesus, but I believe he found salvation in Christ at the foot of the cross because of the way Christ died. He did not revile in return. Surely this man is the Son of God. He said. I think of Paul who stood by and watched Stephen stoned at the end of Acts chapter 7. He held the, the clothes, uh, he, he, he held clothes and things like that. He witnessed the whole thing. He witnessed the whole thing of Stephen being stoned and then Stephen at the end saying, God forgive them for they know not what they do. For he, he, he gave up his last breath and and. and Paul watched all of that. He'd heard him preach that long sermon in Acts 7 before that stoning even occurred. Paul saw all of that. His name was Saul then, but he saw all of that. And then you go into chapter 8 of Acts and he starts persecuting. Saul starts persecuting the church and dragging Christians into prison and having them executed. And then you come to chapter 9 and Paul on his way to Damascus is stricken down to the ground. And he cries out, for salvation. I just can't help but think the way that's outlined and laid out for us there in Acts that Paul could never get Stephen off his mind. The way he spoke, the way he lived, and the way he died. And so that's our challenge this morning. Just as Stephen's testimony was the process by which Saul came to salvation, may God use us, not just our message, but our lives. May that be our greatest tool of evangelism, how we live, how we live. 
Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the privilege to come to this table this morning. May we, may be, we be those, God, who are serious about what we've read this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2. That we're in a battle. May we fight this battle. Not in our own flesh, not in our own strength. We can't do that. We need you. We need the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to give us strength and grace to fight this war. We just love you and thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.